0: Thanks Benjamin and worship team, thanks for the heads up, I'll try to stand on the left here and shout to the, to the people. Good morning everyone, I want to welcome you to our service. If you are visiting with us, we're glad that you're here, we have visitors cards on the current that we gave out and you're welcome to fill that out if there's something you want us to know about you or we can pray for you. Just a real quick announcement, um, on the back of the current you'll see that starting January 5th we're offering a once a month study called Gateway. Pastor John's going to be teaching that. The Bible tells us that once you become a Christian, you're to grow in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ and, and learn what you believe and why you believe that. And so this course is designed to take you through the doctrines of the Bible. If you don't have a Bible this morning, we have some some of our youth that will bring some Bibles forward. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand. We'll be glad to give you one. Turn to Mark chapter 15 But I want to encourage you, those of you who are like, hey, I'd like to go deeper in my faith, Pastor John's going to start this study, you'll learn about the Trinity, about the Holy Spirit, the gifts of the Spirit, speaking in tongues, we'll talk about the tribulation and the future and the kingdom of God, there's so many things, we'll talk about election and whether you can lose your salvation, and so be sure to sign up for that, there is a cost to it, but for any of you that are unable to afford that, we do have scholarship money available, so Just look online and pray about maybe the Lord wanting you to go deeper in your faith. We've had a lot of people go through that to their own benefit, and we hope that many more will as well. All right, we are in the Gospel of Mark, and we're getting near the end, and it's so great because this morning, without even planning it this way, I'm going to speak on Mary and Joseph, and here it is almost Christmas. That's the good news. The bad news is, it's not the same Mary and Joseph. It's not Mary, the mother of Jesus, and it's not Joseph, the... The supposed father of Jesus is actually a different Mary and Joseph, but I want to remind you that the Gospel of Mark. Remember, this was written to a group of people, a group of people who were written living in Rome. Many of them were slaves, and it was a dangerous place to be a Christian. It's not dangerous to be a Christian in America. It's dangerous to profess your faith in the Middle East. It's deadly to profess your faith in North Korea. And so, Mark is writing to these disciples, and he's not softening the message. He's not teaching them how to be a secret service agent. He's calling them to count the cost and say, hey, are you in or out? And so, we've called this series, Clarifying Jesus, the very first verse of the book, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God, clarifying who he is. We go through the book. The demons know he's the son of God. The father says, this is my son, but the disciples can't figure it out. We get to the end of the book, and last week when Jesus was crucified, The centurion, a Roman Gentile, says, truly this was the Son of God. But then John's teaching us, or Mark's teaching us, what it means to commit to the journey. What does it mean to be a follower of Christ? That needs to be clarified in our culture. Yesterday, my family and I went up to Rockefeller Center in New York City, and we were riding back on the train. And I was riding with a man I met, a Chinese man who was born in Taiwan. He works in America, comes back and forth. Not a Christian, but I said, hey, I have a question for you as you've come and lived in America, you've lived in Taiwan, you've been around a lot, I said, what do you see as distinct about Christianity in China versus Christianity in America? And he said, well, it seems as though the Christians in America, many of them, they're not very serious about it. He said, when you're a Christian in China, you're all in. And I thought, wow, that, that's probably um, probably pretty insightful. So what we want to talk about is what does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to commit yourself to Jesus? And at the end of the book, as Mark has been portraying these events in the life of Christ, he keeps giving a series of contrasts. Remember, he's got Peter going, I'll die with you, and Jesus going, be quiet, Pete. And then when it comes time, Jesus boldly confesses his faith, and Peter bails on him. We've got the disciples fleeing, But we've got other people following. And then this morning, Peter's going to set us up for a lesson, or Mark's going to set us up for a lesson in courage versus cowardice. We're going to see this guy Joseph demonstrating what real courage looked like. And then we're going to see these ladies demonstrating what cowardice looks like. So let's start in verse 40. It tells us in chapter 15, Jesus had just died on the cross. And it says, now there were also some women looking on from afar among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the less and Joseph and Salome now some debate is this Mary the mother of Jesus because Jesus had a brother named James and so forth probably not but Mary Magdalene we know that she was the one who had seven demons cast out from her but we're sitting there going, what do you mean they were watching from a distance, okay? They were kind of those people who were kind of on the fence. Now, the disciples were just flat out absent, right? So somebody wants that distance is better than absence. So they're kind of away from the crowd. They don't necessarily want to be fully identified with him. But notice in verse 41, it says, when he was in Galilee, remember, Jesus spent probably two and a half years in Galilee, They used to do what? Follow him and serve him. Okay? Mark's kind of reminding us that's what it means to be a disciple. You follow Christ, you serve him, you minister to him. In fact, the Gospel of Luke tells us that some of these women were wealthy and they were supporting Jesus. It's not like Jesus, like, gee, I don't know where I could get a job. But he had even stopped his own. Career to travel, I mean, as a carpenter, his own job to travel around as an itinerant preacher. He didn't even have a place to lay his head. And so the gospels give prominence to some of these women who followed Jesus and were believers and were serving him. But then Mark, as is common, he'll he'll sandwich it. He's like, Meanwhile, just keep these ladies in your mind. We'll come back to them. Let's talk about someone else. It says, When evening had already come, because it was the preparation the day before the Sabbath. Now Reminding y'all that Christ died on a Friday Sabbath is Saturday. He was crucified at 9 a.m. He gave up his spirit at 3 p.m. The Sabbath begins the evening of Friday, and so there's only a few hours left, and so we read that Joseph of Arimathea Now notice what it says about this guy Number one Arimathea is not real far from Jerusalem but he's a prominent member of the council. Now, that word council is probably another word for the Sanhedrin. Now, you're like, wait a minute, that doesn't fit well. As I've been reading the Gospel of Mark, the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders are the bad guys. Those are those guys who who determined to crucify Jesus. And you're going, wait a minute, this guy, is he one of the ones who's going to crucify him? Now, we learned from the Gospels that he actually... Believe, but it says he was a secret follower for fear of the Jews. So, secondly, we learn this about him. It says, This man Joseph was a man who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God. Now, that phrase is used twice in the Gospels to describe a very unique type of Jewish person in the first century. There weren't a whole lot of them. True. God-fearing believers who had understood what the Old Testament taught and were anticipating that at any time the Messiah would come and that he would destroy the the world as we know it and that he would reign as king over the earth. In fact, the other one who gets sort of the same billing is a woman named Anna. You're reading the gospel of Luke. In Luke chapter 1, It describes the birth of John the Baptist. And it says, Now there was a a woman there named Anna, and she was a widow from the death of her husband, and she served God day and night in the temple. And it said, She was waiting for the redemption of Israel, and she used to speak to others. So, you know, I thought about fast forwarding to our culture. How many people do you think that you know, that you live around, who are not living for this life, but they're just waiting for the next one? They're waiting. For the Lord Jesus Christ to come back to this earth and turn this whole thing upside down. The Bible says that this age is a present, corrupt, dark, and wicked age. And we're supposed to shine as light, Second Peter says, as we wait for and anticipate the coming of the new heavens and the new earth. True believers are the people who say, hey, I'm willing to make sacrifices in this life for the life to come. They're not worried about what they're going to miss out on. Like Moses, who was willing to forsake the riches of Egypt and the pleasures of sin because he was looking to Christ. And so I wonder what it looks like on Sunday morning all over America when people are going, oh, our Father, let your kingdom come and let your will be done on earth. How many people who say that really mean that? You know what that's going to look like? Well, Jesus gave us a hint. He goes, it's going to be done on earth like it's done in heaven. How's it done up in heaven? Who's doing his will up in heaven? Angels and the departed spirits who who are believers. How's that going up there? God says, do this. When do you think it gets done? Immediately. Think they do the whole thing? Completely. Think they have a good attitude? Joyfully. Oh, Lord, please let your kingdom come down here and let your will be done on earth Just like it's done up in heaven, immediately, joyfully, completely, every true follower. And I wonder if the angels are going, really? Did they just say that? Because I'm seeing a disconnect. And so there are people like Joseph who are waiting for the kingdom of God, but Joseph has this crisis moment. This is awesome. Look what it says he's been undercover. I I wonder if he was even there when they were determining to crucify Jesus and he's thinking in his mind, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong. But he just didn't have the guts to say anything. But now he's going to make his move. Look at verse 43. It says, he gathered up the courage and he went in before Pilate and he asked for the body of Jesus. I wonder if he talked to anybody about this. I can imagine if he had any friends, they said, are you crazy? Dude, you might as well just write your death sentence. The guy just had Jesus crucified. He can't stand Jews anyway, and he is in no mood to be messed with. So you better let well enough alone. What does that mean to gather up the courage? Where did he gather it from? I want to remind you something about courage in the Bible. Courage in the Bible is not the absence of fear. If you didn't have any fear, you wouldn't need courage. Courage is when you obey God even when you are afraid. You see, Joseph was willing to go, come hell or high water, this is my moment where I'm going to identify with Jesus. And Pilate just might just say to me, get out. Soldiers, go crucify him also. He gathered up the courage and he comes with boldness. Now why did he ask for the body of Jesus? Because Jews... Jews treated the human body as very sacred. Jews buried bodies, and God told them to do that. Even the most despicable criminal, Deuteronomy 21, 23 says, Cursed is anyone who's hanged on a tree, but don't let his body stay there. Bury him before sundown. And so to save me from having to answer this question, some of you are going to ask me, well, what do you think about cremation, Pastor? I think cremation is not really addressed in the Bible, so I think it would be best to look at it as a matter of conscience. I certainly wouldn't tell you. It's clearly sinful. But John Piper has some interesting articles on why he thinks we should bury bodies. But anyway, so Pilate, it says, he wondered if he was dead by this time. Now, that's probably not a good translation, the word here, "wonders," isn't just like, yeah, I wonder if he's dead. It's, it's, it's kind of a, a word like an amazement, like he's marveling. And, and, and there's probably two things that are striking him. Number one, wow, this dude's risking his life. Like, you don't see that very often. He just, he just asked me for the... Bu- but secondly, I wonder if he's wondering how could he be dead already? I mean, this wasn't his first rodeo, Pilate crucified a lot of people, and most people that were crucified stayed there a long time, sometimes for days, right? So to be dead in six hours is like, really? So Pilate wondered, he was amazed if he was dead by this time, and so summoning the centurion, he questioned him as to whether he was already dead. Now, now don't miss this. Let's not miss the connection. Who's the centurion? Who is this guy? Well, we just read about him. He's the the Roman director of a hundred men who stood at the cross, who was a godless Gentile, who probably had dozens of gods as a Roman, who looks up and watched Christ die and says, this man was the son of God. And who knows, an hour later, somebody says, hey man, Pilate wants to see you. Pilate? I hope he didn't hear what I said, right? I wonder if as he came in, he said, no, Pilate, you got to understand. When I said he's the son of God, like, like I'm not saying you did something wrong. right? I wonder what was going on in this guy's mind. Or is it possible that he came in and said, Pilate, before I tell you about this, listen, you, you probably shouldn't have done that. Because I'm pretty sure watching the way he died, he was really the son of God. But We don't know all that transacted between them but it says, ascertaining from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. Now, interesting, and this is one of the beauties of being able to look up words in the original language, and it's not for genius theologians who read the Greek. Anybody can do it. There's tools out there. There's computer programs. You can look up words, okay? And we could teach you how to do it. Pastor John's leading a Bible study on Tuesday nights. We want people to learn how to study their Bibles. But the word granite here is a very formal word. It wasn't like he's going, whatever, take him, right? It was almost like a formality of a ceremony. And then secondly, the word body that's used here is not the same word, the normal word soma for body. It's a word of a corpse. He granted the corpse, right? So picture Jesus as a corpse, a clay sod in Joseph's arms, right? Where was Jesus? Just think about this for a moment. He's not in his body. How do you know? Because what did he say a couple hours earlier to the thief on the cross? Today, you will be with me in paradise. Just a reminder. Let this sink in, especially if you're new to Christianity. You got two parts, an outer man and an inner man. Life is not just about your physical, external needs, your desires, your fears, your emotions. It's about your soul. It's about your inner being. And these two are connected. When we die, if you're a Christian, there will be a temporary separation. We're absent from the body and present with the Lord. But don't think to yourself, boy, I can't wait to be in heaven with Jesus forever. You won't be. The only reason that we leave our bodies at all is because of sin and death. But that's a temporary place where it's a better place. It's dead, but with Christ, right? But at the resurrection, we're reunited with our bodies. And so Jesus is having a, quote, out-of-body experience. His spirit has gone, and now he's in paradise, right? He's talking with the saints. Perhaps he even goes across into hell and makes a proclamation to the spirits in prison, But don't for a moment have anyone tell you that Jesus is in hell. Oh, man, how long do I have to be here? Three days? Jesus didn't burn in hell for a moment. Because he hung on the cross, he said, it's finished. So, he takes this corpse of Jesus, verse 46 says, he bought a linen sheet. Now, this is the same word that's used of the the guy when they got arrested in the garden. It said, and one young man fled having only a linen sheet. He took him down, imagine taking those nails out, wrapping him in a linen sheet, and he laid him in a tomb, which had been hewn out of a rock. We just sing often, there in the ground his body lay. We we lay him in this tomb. Now the interesting thing about this tomb is that this was not the common grave of Jewish people. Only rich people could afford this very elaborate stone tomb carved into a rock okay now you're like wow that's well it's not as weird as you think go to any graveyard around here you'll see big glorious wealthy mausoleums and then behind the hickory tree in the back is a little stone that says you know joe smith so only wealthy people had these stone graves and by the way these were on a rotating basis they could stay in the family you're like well what do you mean well, they didn't leave people in there forever. So they would put the corpse in there after they anointed it with spices, wrapped it like a mummy, but then they would let it decay, and a year or two later, they would go in there, and they would take the bones out, and they would put the bones into a box called an ossuary. And so Joseph maybe was planning to use this for others, but this was expensive. I don't think Joseph was a funeral director. He's like, oh, I got nine of them. Let me give me Jesus, that one on the corner. Nobody wants that anyway. But then on the other hand, I heard a preacher say, let's not make a big deal. So what? He gave something expensive to Jesus. He knew he was only going to borrow it for the weekend. Benjamin was right. This is a tough crowd. Wow. I don't think he had a VRGO, you know, rent, rent a grave for the weekend. So he, he, he takes Jesus, Right? He placed them in there. Meanwhile, the women are going. But wait a minute. We didn't even get to anoint them. We didn't even get to wrap them. But look what time it is. We're not allowed to work on the Sabbath. So we'll have to come back on Sunday. And so verse 47 says, Mary, the mother of Jesus, was looking. Or, or Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, were looking on to see where he was laid. So, are like, ah, all right, I know where it is. Now what they had failed to do was think long term. That stone was huge. It wasn't like a little rock they just pick up it was a huge stone there's no way they're going to open that stone and in in the details of just oh we got to go anoint him they didn't think this through and so verse 1 of chapter 16 says when the sabbath was over mary magdalene mary the mother of james at salone they bought spices that they might come and anoint him and very early on the first day of the week they came to the tomb i wonder if they even slept that night But the moment the first ray of sunlight peeked through, they're like, Sabbath is over. We can do this. And on their way, it says they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? Sometimes in our haste, we fail to plan carefully. Thinking about this, my wife and I, in 1982, packed up our stuff in a U-Haul and moved to Texas to go to seminary. I had flown down ahead of time at least to find a place to live, and so I found this little cottage that we were going to rent, but as we're driving down there, I'm thinking to myself, how are we going to unpack our truck? We've got some heavy furniture, and I'm not going to put it on my wife's back, so I thought, you know, I'll just, when we get there, I'll find somebody, and I'll say, hey, buddy, you want to earn a couple bucks? Oh, I found somebody. I knew it was going to go downhill when we were coming in the door, and the the, the, the fold-away bed couch popped open in the doorway? I'll just leave it at that. Let's just say it was quite a while before we got that in the door, and the doorway didn't look real good. And so these guys are kind of going, the ladies are going, I don't, we got to find some, maybe there'll be a couple guys there we can get them to roll it away. But notice, verse 4, looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, although it was extremely large, and entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting at the right, wearing a white robe, and they were amazed. Now maybe you've, you've heard the question, why are there four Gospels? And years ago I heard somebody say something, and I was like, yeah, that's a great way to describe it. Imagine if we were all on four different street corners, and we all saw the same accident, but we just told it from our angle. But over time, as I read and studied and thought about this, I'm like, no, that's a terrible way to illustrate the Gospels. These guys probably all knew the same information, right? They had conversed with one another. They simply chose to include or exclude certain details according to their own purposes. So sometimes people who are first reading the Bible, they're like, you can't believe the Bible, it contradicts itself. Don't you know in Matthew, it says there were two angels at the tomb? But in Mark, it says they saw one angel. See, the Bible contradicts itself. And I go, whoa, tiger. It doesn't say in Mark, there was one and only one. And don't let anybody tell you otherwise that there was two. It just says there was a guy there. Did Mark know there was two angels there? Yeah. Well, why didn't he tell him there was two? Because he didn't want to. And he didn't need to. It wasn't his purpose. say, well, wait a minute. Doesn't Matthew say... That when Jesus died, they sealed the tomb with the, the tomb with stone, like extra concrete, and weren't there Roman soldiers around the tomb? And I go, yeah. In fact, Matthew actually adds, and then there was a great earthquake, and the soldiers were terrified at an angel, and they passed out dead, as though they were dead, right? And by the time they came to, the whole thing was over, and in fear they ran back and they told the Jews, and the Jews said, here's some money, just tell somebody his body was stolen. So again, when these ladies showed up, you're like, oh, there's a contradiction. Where were the soldiers? Well, that's not a contradiction. Maybe the soldiers had already run away, right? But why does Mark choose what he chooses to focus on? Because there's certain things he wants to bring out. So for example, he's very low key on describing this angel. The other gospels describe brilliant white, and this is something interesting, a little angelology, which is something you'll learn about when you take the the gateway course when angels come down to earth they usually take on the appearance of people but just so you're not too surprised when you get to heaven the bible never describes angels up in heaven as looking like men in white robes in fact sometimes they're kind of creepy they have eyes all over them some of them have six wings they move around like wheels in the middle of a wheel and so one thing I can assure you, you won't see any with little naked butts, powder, and little wings going, I'm a cherub, okay? So we sort of have to go, wow, I need to think about this. These angels, who was this angel, right? But I can tell you this. When the Lord said to him, go down there, he didn't go, ah, oh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm still eating my angel food cake. I'll, I'll get to that. Like, he was happy to do that. And the Lord didn't just send him down there. He gave him a very specific message all right? And Mark chooses to focus only on certain things, all right? Look at verse 6. And he said to them, don't be amazed, because obviously they're, they're like, whoa, right? Don't be amazed. I know what you're looking for. You're looking for Jesus the Nazarene. Now, by the way, look what he adds. You're looking for Jesus the Nazarene who has been crucified. There's a reason why Mark adds that. There's a reason why the angel said that. We're going to come back to that. And then he says, he's risen, he's not here. Behold, look, here's the place they laid him. Oh, but before you go, I got a message for you. This is what God wants you to do. Go tell his disciples and Peter, he is going before you into Galilee, and there you will see him just as he said to you. By the way, we're in Jerusalem. Galilee is about 60 miles away, okay? He's going before you and he'll meet you in Galilee. There's a lot of mystery to that because we're like, when did that happen and what happened there? 1 Corinthians chapter 15 actually says this. Christ, on one occasion after his resurrection, appeared to more than 500 people at one time. That's that's as many, this sanctuary is about 520, I think, right? So it wasn't like Jesus was just sneaking by going, hi, 500 people. Probably that's where it happened, up in Galilee. So Jesus says, hey, get up there and meet me up there. And then he appears to 500 of them a fascinating study, for those of you who are going deeper in the word. The Bible says, for 40 days, Jesus appeared with many convincing proofs. We only have 10 records. He might have appeared 200 times. There's only 10 stories of post-death appearances of Christ before he ascended back to heaven. The two from Emmaus, Mary at the tomb. But here, notice carefully, go tell his disciples and Peter, Wait, help, wait, and Peter? I thought Peter was one of the disciples. wonder how, how that went down with Peter. Ooh, ooh, go, this guy said to us, go tell his disciples and Peter. Peter's like, what do you mean, and Peter? I'm one of the disciples. Don't miss that, right? And then, verse 8, they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had gripped them. I mean, these people were rocked. They're like, "Ha!" Ah, right? Now, what were they told? Okay, two words. Ready? Go tell. Not even on the mountain like the shepherds. Just go tell. Well, how did they do? Thy will be done on earth as in heaven. Let's look. It says, and they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. Wait, what? I thought they were told go tell. Now, here's where it gets really crazy. We don't have the original copy of the Gospel of Mark. The original, we call them the original autographs. Nobody has that, right? All we have is manuscripts, and there's not just one of them. There's numerous manuscripts that have been copied of the Gospel of Mark. Some of them go back as early as the 300s, right? Many old Greek manuscripts end there. That's it. You're like, no, Pastor, look, there's a bunch more verses. Now listen to what I'm saying. Many Greek manuscripts end there. There's not like a bunch of erased stuff like, let's carve this out. It's not like somebody took a pair of scissors. That's where it ends, right? So two weeks from now, Pastor John is going to preach on that. He's going to talk about this. He's going to explain this and help us understand better how to study the Bible. But let's just think about... So these Roman readers are trying to decide, do I commit my life to Jesus? Am I going to live? Am I going to die? Oh, wow, that's so cool. The lady saw it. And hey, hey, don't go get popcorn right now. Don't take a bathroom break. It's getting good. And the guy who's reading the Gospel of Mark, he comes to this verse. And they went out and they fled from the tomb. Remember, the angel had just told them, go tell. And fear and astonishment gripped them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. And all the Roman Christians are going, keep reading. And he goes, that's it. No, no, what happened? No, you don't understand. That's it. Are you allowed to do that? Some of you are like, you know what that reminds me of? I've watched movies like that. I've watched movies where it kind of like, that can't be the end. Like, that's leaving me hanging. Yeah, exactly. So let's suppose maybe this was the end. Did Mark run out of gas? Or did he leave us hanging? Did he leave you and me to wrestle with the implications and say, so, what would you do? Well, that's theory. What will you do now? That's practice. Now, as we close this section, it would be really cool to do like an anatomy of Joseph versus Mary. Mary. Let's talk about the human condition. Let's talk about fear and cowardice. Let's talk about courage and, but you know what? It's really important that we always try to talk about Jesus. The Bible is a book about Jesus. Jesus says, search the scriptures for they testify of me. So it's important that we remember this, that from cover to cover, the scarlet thread of redemption and the Lord Jesus Christ is the prominent person in the Bible. And so here's a couple applications. When you're reading your children Bible stories, Don't leave them hanging. You say, well, what do I mean by that? Don't teach them the story of David and Goliath and then say, hey, and the next time the bully tries to mess with you, sock them right in the nose or pick up a rock and put one right through their forehead. Don't teach them about Noah's Ark and then go, well, that's cool. And by the way, let me teach you about Daniel in the lion's den. Point them to Jesus. Let them see that every story in the Bible, every passage in the Bible ultimately the hero here is not Daniel. The hero here is not Noah. The hero here is not Moses. The hero is always Jesus. That's why we have a Jesus storybook. It's our bestseller in the bookstore. I know how you all roll. You're like, this is for my grandkids. Come on, we don't have that many grandkids. You're reading it, and that's fine, because it's actually doing a new thing. It's, it, it's not like this is the first person that came up with the idea, but every story in the Jesus storybook ends with pointing you to Christ. And you know why that's important? Because otherwise, sometimes we inoculate our kids. We fill their heads with stories of the Bible that are disconnected and they don't point to Jesus and they don't point to the big picture and they don't talk about how Noah's Ark applies to me today. And so as Christians, it's important that we always say, hey, the word of God is designed to point me to Christ. Down at Teth Presbyterian Church, in their pulpit, Donald Gray Barnhouse had a little plaque put. It's from John chapter 11 when it says, the Greeks showed up at the Passover and they said, we wish to see Jesus. What a great reminder for anyone who stands in the pulpit and opens the Bible. They're not here to hear you, buddy. They would wish to hear Jesus. You can go and listen for great sermons, but I'd encourage you to go and listen for a great Savior. And so I want to close by talking about a couple of applications here. As we look at Jesus, I want you to note some things that come out of this passage. Number one, Jesus is a finished work Savior. You say, well, where'd you get that, Pastor? Look down at chapter 15 in verse 6. You're seeking Jesus who was crucified. Listen, there are a whole lot of Jesuses out there. In fact, the Apostle Paul, way back in the first century, As the Corinthians were getting further away away from the Christian faith, he goes, I don't know what Jesus that you're believing in, but that's another Jesus. There's all kinds of Jesus out there. There's Jesus, the Mr. Rogers, the nice moral teacher. There's Jesus, the misled rebel who was ahead of his time. He was turning social revolution, but the poor guy was misunderstood. There's Jesus... The wonderful human teacher, the moral teacher, do unto others. But that's not the Jesus of the Bible. The Jesus of the Bible is the finished work Savior, Jesus who was crucified. Listen, that word is packed, crucified. He finished the work. The New Testament makes a big deal about this. One sacrifice for all time, forever, forever full and final and free and complete payment. Jesus paid it all in six hours one Friday, he said, it is finished. Let me teach you some math. The moment you take the cross and do addition, well you have to be baptized, you have to do penance, you have to do this. You've done a major subtraction. You've just removed the cross. Unlike a Christmas tree, do not decorate Calvary. Jesus hung on that cross And when he shed his blood, he said, it is finished. He paid the full and final payment for our sins. And it grieves me, it saddens me that I meet people again and again, especially from different traditions, who are so worried like, oh gosh, well, I do believe Jesus died for me, but I still have to go to purgatory. What? He didn't say it's almost finished. Colossians chapter 2 says, All of my sins have been nailed to the cross. So join the chorus. My sins, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sins, not in part, but the whole, was nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. You say, Pastor, but you don't understand. I got a lot. Listen, I do understand. The devil's a great reminder of our failures. And instead of trying to argue, well, I'm not so bad, stop arguing. Just say, yeah, but behold the Lamb of God. That's my hope. And this is a big deal. The Apostle Paul, when he was with the Corinthians, he goes, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus and him crucified. Now right now, here's a good test case of your own heart. Does this seem weird? Talking about some bloody guy hanging on a piece of wood? If it seems weird to you, then you might just be right now what the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. The preaching of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. Teach me more, brother. Tell me more about, I love to tell, I want to hear about it. I want to sing about it. Tell me about Calvary. Morning, a gentleman said to me, he goes, that's the first time ever I listened to a whole sermon. He said, you must have been really on your game today. I said, no, I'm not doing anything different. I said, if you listen to a whole sermon, you're really interested. Something's going on in here, right? Christ is a finished work Savior. That's the message we have. We take that word out to people. Believe. Once for all, O sinner, receive it. Once for all, O brother, believe it. Cling to the cross and your burdens will fall. Christ redeemed us once for all. But he's not just a, he's not here, you're seeking Jesus to crucify. Then it says, but he's risen. He's a fully alive Savior. There's all kinds of implications that spring out of the resurrection. Think about it. When Jesus was raised, twice in the New Testament, in Romans 6, it says, he died never to die again. In fact, Jesus took this on as one of his monikers. In Revelation chapter 1, he says, I am he who was dead, but I'm alive forevermore. He's fully alive permanently, right? No more funerals for Jesus because he lives. And what are the implications of a fully alive savior? First of all, think about the power that raised him from the dead. The book of Ephesians says, I'm praying that you will know the power that God demonstrated when he raised Christ from the dead. Romans 1 says he was declared the son of God with power. Not only was he raised with power, he was endowed with power. When he was raised from the dead, the Bible says, God highly exalted him and gave him the name above every name that in heaven and on earth, every knee will bow. And you say, well, what's that have to do with me? Well, I'll tell you what it has to do with you and me. Because in the meantime, I'm down here going, Jesus, I'm trying to get through the day and make disciples. He goes, I know. Go and make disciples. Matthew 28. And all authority is given to me in heaven and on earth. You're like, well, that's good for you. He goes, it's good for you also. Because I'm with you always. Remember that? Go make disciples. All power is mine because I'm risen. And now I'm with you. I find that to be extraordinarily helpful to you. Amen? I'm thankful for that. Not only is, it, is, is, is that the case, but it's also fully alive, and therefore, notice what it says He will go before you into Galilee. That's cool. Let me to tell you something cooler. He went before us in a way bigger way because He died and then He rose. And then he said, because I live, you shall live. He that believes in me, though he were to die, yet shall he live. Do you believe this? This is why the Bible calls Jesus the author and perfecter of our faith. What's it like to die? Ask Jesus. He's already done it. So he's fully alive, and he's the one who who went before me up into heaven, and so I'm already chained to him. I'm already anchored. My anchor holds. And come hell or high water, I'm going to be with him. I don't need to be afraid to die anymore. Tell me more about Jesus. Okay, I will. How about this? He's faithful to his word. Notice what the disciple says. He says, go and tell them you'll see him in Galilee. He's risen. Uh, Just as he said. There's almost a note of irony to that. Just as he said. They're shocked. He's risen. And Jesus goes, help me understand why you're shocked. How many times did I say, am I stuttering here? I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to die. And on the third day, I'm going to rise. And then he rises from the dead. And they're like, ah! And he goes, told you so. Think about that. How many times? And I'm right with you. I know what he said. I know what he promised. And then I flip out anyway. (laughs) Right? I'm just like the disciple sitting in the boat going, Jesus, don't you care? And he's going, where's your faith? So let's start with something like this. Pastor, you don't understand. I'm struggling with this sin. I, I, I can't seem to stop. Oh, I thought he said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He said, Pastor, I don't know how I'm going to pay my bills. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought he said, my God will supply all your needs. You say, Pastor, I feel like the Lord has forsaken me. Oh, I'm sorry, I thought he said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Starting to get a kind of a concept here of what it means to believe Jesus. What it means to say, not one word that Jesus ever said fell on the ground. He will do everything he said. Oh, I feel so guilty about my sins. What did he say? You are forgiven. Oh, I don't think I can do that. That's encouraging. You say, I... I, It's too much, I can't handle it. Oh, I thought he said, no temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, Jesus is faithful to his word. Didn't he promise he won't allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able? Like, this is encouraging. So from now on, if you're ever in an old church and they sing these old songs called hymns, and they go, let's sing Standing on the Promises, and you stand up and go, yeah, I have a faithful Savior. Standing on the prom." And Jesus goes, stop please, which one you're standing on? And you're like, um... Oh, Tim Tebow, John 3, 16. He's like, that's a good one. You stand on any other ones? Because you said promises. Like, claim the promises. And I wrestle with God. I had a son, and I'm going, Jesus, you said right here, train up a child in the way he should go. When he's old, he won't depart from it. I ain't seeing it happen. You told me that if I disciplined my children, blah, 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 I had this high ideal that they'll all turn out to love Jesus. It didn't quite go that way. But he keeps his word. And I hope that will encourage you. I don't want to get to heaven and Jesus go, what? What? Isn't that what I said? Isn't this, isn't this? I was thinking about this yesterday. I was watching a football game. I said to my wife, watch this. I'm going to score a touchdown this time. And it's really cool when it happens. You're like, see, see, I said so. The problem is, what about all the times you said so and it didn't happen? Jesus doesn't taunt us. See, I said so. He goes, trust me. Faithful to his word. But there's more. He's not only finished his work on Calvary, he's finishing his work. It was very carefully chosen words when Jesus said, go tell his disciples and Peter. Because Peter needed to squirm with that. Peter needed to go, wait, am I out of the circle, never to be allowed back again? Don't forget, Jesus restored Peter. You know what I mean by finishing his work? His work is you and me. And that's a big job, isn't it? Let me remind you something if you're a christian philippians 1 6 says he that began a good work in you will perform it until the day of christ whether you were four years old 14 years old 40 years old or four minutes ago you became a christian he started it and he will finish it he never says too much work you're off the team pete you you say but pastor I can remember back in March of 1979 when Jesus called me to himself. My brother's here this morning. You can ask him. You will say, wow, there was, was a change. I didn't initiate that. He began to go. You say, oh, pastor, you probably just have had this unending spiral of perfection and sanctification and perfection and holiness, and I'm going, my wife's here. Ask her, right? We're all in this together, but how encouraging to know that God is finishing his work and whatever happened in the past, he's not done with you. He restored Peter. They had to have some heart-to-heart. Pete, do you love me? Go feed my sheep. But Jesus is there for you. He's on your side. And if he's for you, who can be against you? And he's not done with you. And he could still use you. In fact, he knew this so much about Peter, he told him it was going to happen again. He said, you're going to deny me, but don't worry, I prayed for you. So your faith won't fail. If you're still following the Lord, there's only one reason. It's because he prayed for you. If my Christianity was I got to hold on to Jesus like a relay race and not drop the baton, count me out. But my, my Christianity of the New Testament is a wheelbarrow race. I was dead, and he picked me up, and he carried me. Now, if you don't follow him obediently and faithfully, it ain't going to be fun because he'll give you a spanking. David learned the hard way in Psalm 32. He said, don't be like me. Don't be like a horse or a mule that needs a bridle. But if you're a Christian and you're not obeying Jesus, he's not going to go, oh, don't worry, I just love you just as you are. He's going, I love you too much to, to, to be that way. So, so don't stay that way, but don't let Satan remind you, well, what about this? So when he reminds you, what about this? You go, what about that? And you say, look, the Lord can use people who've messed up. So in light of all that, here's the closer. He's a follow-worthy Savior, Right? You know what wins people's hearts and breaks people's hearts and changes people's lives? A crucified Savior. He loved me that much? Like with all my junk? My wife and I, I it, this kills me. I laugh again this week in a Bible study. Somebody said, but it seems like everybody else in church is so happy and they have good marriages and all. And when I get up on the ground laughing, I'm going, why do you think that? Why do you think everybody here has it all together? We don't. We're sinners. We got baggage. But if he was worthy to go to the cross, and he's worthy to be followed, what does that look like? Well, let's let's start with Joseph of Arimathea. It says in John, Joseph being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one. In Matthew it says, there was a rich man named Joseph who had become a disciple of Jesus. Jesus. There came a point where Joe said, That's it. I'm not following from a distance any longer. Now, some of you have already done that. You've made your profession of faith. You have committed to follow Christ. You've already been baptized. You don't need to get saved over again. You don't need to get baptized over again. You just need to get on track if you're not on track. Some of you are on track. We're all following him, we're learning, we're growing but I want to give some of you an opportunity this morning to do something. I, I thought about this last night, is I'm just going to ask you, if you feel led, like Joseph, to say, listen, I'm, 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 going, I'm going all in. So I did this in the first service. I said, if you're here, and you have never identified yourself as a believer, like you truly believe that Jesus died for your sins, rose again, and, and as your Lord and Savior, but you've never really told anyone or you've been thinking about it, then I said, I want you to stand up in a moment. Just stand up and boldly say, like Joseph, count me in. I'm a Christian. Bible says, confess with your mouth Jesus says, Lord. Guess who the first guy to pop up was? John Beagle's dad. John Beagle's dad. Now, I talked to John's dad just a few months ago. I didn't arrange that with him. But then a guy sitting way back there popped up. I'm Peter. I don't even know him. Another lady right here, Victoria. Count me in. And I missed a little boy. I missed Benjamin Harding's son, Carsten, stood up on his own. I said, did your mom tell you? No. He did it. Right? And so it's so encouraging to see people. And so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to just, in a moment, after we pray, I'm going to give you a chance to do that. A couple things. Number one, don't be a copycat. Don't stand around and go, I'm only going to stand if somebody else stands. Right? That's a jack in the box. You just say, Holy Spirit, I'm in. Right? And if you don't, I'm not gonna go home and go, darn, it didn't work. This is a work of God. And if the spirit's working in your heart, Rich Beagle said to me, he goes, When you were talking about that, I, I thought to myself, Am I gonna do this? Uh, yes, he did. Right? So let's just take a moment to pray. I'm gonna make it all dramatic. Father, There has to be a point in a person's life where they publicly identify themselves with Christ. There probably are some people here who have been coming and exploring and deciding and thinking. Let me remind you, this isn't for people who have never professed faith. This is for someone who's never really said, hey, I want to follow Jesus. Father, I pray that you'll give them courage like Joseph. May they gather up the courage to stand up and say, I believe." Just there in their their seat to identify themselves as a follower of Christ. This is a work that's not by human might, but by your Holy Spirit. So, Lord, we celebrate the people in the first service, and if there's no one, that's fine. If there's someone, we praise the Lord. To God be the glory, Jesus, call people to yourself, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, you ready? You're in. Stand up. One in the back. Anybody else? Okay. Praise the Lord. That doesn't mean you're going to hell if you didn't stand up. But let's talk about it. If you're not ready, if you're confused, we're here to help you. Let's stand together. Father, thanks for this time in the Word, this time to follow Christ. And we thank you so much for a wonderful Savior who was crucified, risen, and coming again. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful day. Be praying for our upcoming Christmas Eve services.